So Peter is, uh, so Peter here is writing, you guys are familiar with Peter, right? Um, you know, the disciple with Jesus for three years. Um, there's actually a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say speculation, but there's always naysayers out there, right? Uh, who will take anything that's in the Bible and then say, well, I don't really believe that, that that's really what it is. And, and Peter's one of those books where uh, people look at it and they say, you know what, the, the way it's written, the style, it's, it's way too good for some old fisherman to be writing um, to be writing this book or this letter here. And it's interesting that when you think about Peter, well, what church history kind of tells us is Peter's this big, gruff kind of guy. Um, you know, if, if you're messing around with him, you know, he's the guy that just grabs a hold of you and throws you across a room, just kind of joking, but actually can just hurt you. And we have this picture of him from church history that he's this big, gruff uh, kind of guy ready to slap you with the fish at any time. But we know for one, we know one thing's for sure, that he walked with Jesus for three years. Three years, give or take a few months, whatever you want to say in there. And it was interesting for the people who say, well, there's no way that Peter could have ever written this. It's, it's too far beyond his, his intellect and his understanding, his ability to communicate like that. If you remember over in Acts, it's Peter and John. They find themselves in front of the Sanhedrin. Matter of fact, I'll just read it to you if you want to turn. I believe it's Acts chapter 4. And as, you, as, as they're there in front of the Sanhedrin, in verse 13, they're brought in front of them to give an account of the things that they're saying and the things that they're teaching. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it said that, it says this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were what? Unschooled, ordinary men, they were, I love this word, astonished. And this is the fun part. They took note that these men had what? Been with Jesus. Now, Paul tells us if you go over to 1 Corinthians, just go to your right a little bit there. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. This is really, I, I, I think this is, just fits in parallels nicely with all of this. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul makes this statement. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Does anybody fit in that category? Because I can say that most of you do. No, I can say that, that I fit into that, into that category. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. That fits these guys like Peter and John. You know, I mean, they were uh, somewhat successful in the fishing business, but as far as, you know, society types, that, that's not the background of these guys. And so people are always trying to say, man, there's no way Peter ever wrote this book. You know what? I tell you what, in part, I believe him. Because I believe it's the Spirit of God using Peter as the instrument to write what God desires for the church to hear. Let me also say this. Don't ever think that you are not enough to be used in a way like God has used a man like Peter or John or any of the guys or anybody that's ever followed him. I mean, you may think, and sometimes we get in the place where we think, well, you know, they're greater than I am, so God's going to use them in a greater way. Let me say that God has made it abundantly clear he doesn't pick the smartest all the time. He doesn't pick the best looking all the time. As a matter of fact, he likes the sheep type personality that just says, hey, wherever you lead, what? I'll follow you. I'll go. And Peter was such a man, and man, you see the miraculous work that God does in Peter's life. And God simply leads Peter down this road to where he gives Peter situation after situation to rely upon himself, his own understanding. Peter sooner or later finds out that it's all for naught. There's no value in his own understanding. And then you see Jesus and Peter there on the seashore, and Jesus essentially bringing him back into ministry, and then commissioning him and saying, Peter, now that you understand that you're not capable, now I can use you as the instrument that I desire. Guys, don't think that Peter is some guy that God chose that's in a whole nother league as you, because we're all in the same league. And all that God is desiring to do is to pull men and women, to use men and women who say, you know what, however you want to use me, 
use me. So Peter's writing to the church. This is around the 64 AD uh, time frame, give or take a little bit of time there. He's writing from Rome. Matter of fact, we'll, I'll, we'll go ahead and address that here before we get too much further. Over in chapter 5, um, verse 13, in closing of 2 Peter 5, 13, he says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. He's saying that uh, the lady here in Babylon uh, sends you her greetings. We don't know. What did I say? First Peter 5.13. Um, well, let's see what 2 Peter 5.13 says. So, well, it depends on what translation you have. Says so she who's in Babylon, and he's speaking of Rome. We know that Peter, we never, we never had uh, any understanding or indication that Peter went all the way out to Babylon for a visit. Um, but we also know in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 that Rome is referred to the great city of Babylon. She, she, Rome is referred to as Babylon. So Peter's writing now from Rome. And what's interesting about all of this, and we don't have exact dates on all of this, that while Peter's in Rome, it's right around the time, it's within kind of the same year that Paul's going to be put to death in Rome. Matter of fact, within probably the year that Paul is put to death, Peter's also going to be put to death in Rome. And so we understand that there's a great persecution. And what Peter is writing is there's a great persecution. I should say Peter was put to death by Rome. There's a great persecution that's getting ready to unfold upon the church. Matter of fact, they're already starting to feel it in a sense. For many years, so we have the understanding that if this is in 64, this is 30 years, essentially 30 years that the church has been established now. And during many of those years, the church had a certain religious freedom because many saw Christianity as just a sect of Judaism. Because they preached there in the temple area, people were being saved, they would go to the temple baptismal pools. By the way, when we get to Israel, I'm hoping to make it next summer if anybody wants to go with me. Um, besides my wife, she'll, she'll be going as well. But they still have baptismal pools out there. And you can see where people are baptized or were baptized. And so there's this great, so there's this understanding that uh, they believed at the time that Christianity was just a sect of Judaism, so Rome never really bothered with Christianity for quite a while. Well, until the Christians started becoming very bold in their proclamation, such as they have no king but Jesus. They're not going to bow down to any Caesar in any way whatsoever. As a matter of fact, that Roman culture, the Greco-Roman culture, um, when there were bad things that would come upon the land, um, like famines uh, would come upon the land, they would blame the Christians because the Christians didn't worship many gods. They just worshiped their one true God. And so what the Roman, the Greco-Roman world figured at this time, or what they thought is, well, it's because of the Christians that we're having these famines come upon us because they're not honoring our God. So they're the result of this famine that's come upon us. So persecution would start. We also see there is some persecution like Saul of Tarsus going after the Christians. But for the most part, for quite a while, they had a lot of religious freedom. But then after time, they started separating. They started to become known as something other than just a sect of Judaism. As a matter of fact, we know that Caesar Nero um, lit a part of Rome on fire. Uh, it was the old decrepit part. He wanted it destroyed so he could rebuild great some, build some great monuments in his name, like the Circus Maximus and, uh, and other great buildings that, that he constructed. But what he did was he had people light the city on fire, and then he blamed it on the Christians. They are an easy scapegoat. Thus, here comes some more persecution against the church. And as Peter now starts addressing this, he knows that there's people out there, that there's Christians out there that are being persecuted just because they call on the name of Jesus. He knows that there's Christians out there that are being persecuted because of the difference in lifestyle that they live. And then he knows that there's people out there being persecuted by Rome, and Rome is starting to hunt them down and throw them in prison. 
And so as Peter is writing this letter, he knows, he has this feeling, this insight, whatever it may be, that there's getting ready to be this, these, this great wave of persecution that comes upon the church. If you go and uh, study the 10 waves of, of Roman persecution on the church, you could just Google that. Um, there were certain emperors, Trajan, uh, Hadrian, uh, Diocletian, and he was in the, the mid-200s, I think around 260. And over this course of time, we see about 6 million Christians um, are exterminated. You've heard of the situations where they would be put into the Colosseum, wiped out by the lions, other animals, and so forth, the gladiators, all of that. Uh, Nero would put them up and use them essentially as candles to light his courtyard. Um, all sorts of crazy things. He'd dip them in wax, put them up there, um, light them on fire during the night. And that's how the Christians were being treated. So this is getting ready. This is right before some really heinous stuff is getting ready to come against the church. And so Peter writes a letter. And Peter, as he writes, he's writing as the apostle of hope. Hope. The people need hope. They need a reason to continue on and to not give up. And as you notice through this particular, uh, through this letter here, um, grace is mentioned in every chapter. And suffering is actually mentioned 15 times using eight different words to describe it. So this is a book that's talking about the suffering of a believer. And he's trying to encourage them to hang on. Don't give up. I know the trials are there. I know the trials are difficult. I understand the temptation to give up, to lay down, to walk away from it. But he's going to tell them it's not worth it. When you consider God, when you consider your inheritance, when you consider your salvation, when you consider Christ, when you consider all of these things, it's not worth it to try to escape the persecution in the world. And he's telling them, go through it. But as you go through it, you have to follow God through it or you're going to fail. We understand Peter really, as you read through this, recognize Peter as the apostle of hope. Paul, throughout scripture or uh, when you see his writing, he's the apostle of faith. You look in early on in Romans, he's talking about the faith, the faith of Abraham and what God's going to do with the Israelites, all of that. And when you look at the apostle John, he's the apostle of what? Of love. So you have Paul, who's the apostle of faith, writes a lot about faith. Peter is writing a lot about the necessity of hope and having hope in God. And you have John, who writes an awful lot about the need for the love of God in our lives. Faith, hope, and love. Greatest of those is what? Is love. Verse 1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I can't tell you, you know, how many times have we started a book and we always, we see something similar to this, a, a bond servant, a bond slave, a slave of Christ. And here Peter just starts out and he says, hey, I'm an apostle. And we know, what's an apostle? What's, what does that word mean? Simply put, a disciplined follower, what else? Somebody who's appointed. Anything else? Yeah, somebody who is just simply, well, he's sent to another region to speak on behalf of his king. And so all Peter is saying is this, I'm one who is sent to another area to speak on behalf of my king, my master. And I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting that when we think of a guy like Peter, when he came into an area, was there, do you think there is ever any doubt? Do you think there's ever any doubt in people's minds whom Peter represented? Do you think when he came into an area that it didn't take very long before they realized he's one of these Christians? Do you think it took very long whenever Paul reached an area? It didn't, did it? When Peter went to an area and he came into a group of people, he was the ambassador. He's the ambassador of Christ Jesus. And he came to bring them the good news from his master. And he's just the conduit to tell them what the good news is. And I thought, you know, once again, here we go. And we exalt a guy like Peter to this position that's literally worshipped in some realms today. And we think, oh, he's the one who brings the message to the lost. He's an ambassador. 
the question is always this. Should people be able to be in our sphere of influence or even invested in our lives, yet not even know the one whom we serve? How could it ever be that we would be in a place in our lives where people could come into our homes, into our places of businesses, into whatever it may be where we do our recreation, but never ever understand that those people there, they all represent Christ Jesus. Guys, I believe that if a guy like Peter and Paul could come to us today, I believe John would tell us, you just need to learn to love one another a little bit more and to know the love of Christ. But I think these guys would say, is your sphere of influence greatly permeated with the love of Christ? Is that exuding off of you that people know whom it is that you represent? People know when you walk in, hey, there's, a, there's, there's one of those Christians. Because I know that Peter, man, wherever he would go, people would know it. And I desire in my life, now, there's no reward in being freakish. You know, Megan, you know, it's not going to work for her if she wears the ball cap with the electric cross on top of it and, you know, get saved now or go to hell. That's not going to, that's not going to do anything for anybody. But you know, guys, here's the deal. Don't consider yourself so much different than Peter. Because God said, Peter, go tell people about who I am. In the same way, he's telling us the same thing. Hey, go tell people about who I am. Scripture tells us that the church has been given pastors, evangelists, prophets, pastor, teachers, evangelists, prophets, to equip the church to what? To do the work of the ministry. He's given all those things to the church for us to go do the work of the ministry. And so here's Mr. Peter. By the way, one more thing I wanted to tell you that's kind of interesting. Paul makes comment in Romans 15. And Paul says this. He says, I won't start another work, loosely paraphrasing Paul. He says, I won't start a work where another apostle has already started work. Okay. So it means this, that if Paul has started a work in Rome, and we know that he has, he's writing letters there, he's ministering to them, it means that another apostle hadn't started work that, there. Does that make sense? Paul's not going to build, he says, on another man's foundation. So it means that when Paul went to Rome, Paul was bringing the good news for the first time, really for the first time to Rome, and establishing the churches there in the area. Now one thing, just for you to note, because it's kind of in the news right now, the reason why the Catholics, they believe that Peter was the first bishop of Rome or the first what? Pope. They believe that he started the church there. But we know that Peter didn't start the church. Otherwise, Paul would have never have been there. Just kind of interesting, one of those things. I don't really know how you use that in a practical application. Um, whatever you want to do with that or, or whenever you want to pull it out, that's fine. But Peter's just simply saying, I'm just an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says this to God's elect, strangers in the world and scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And he says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Now, Paul is first, or Peter is first saying this, excuse me, I hate it that, that there's Paul and Peter so close there. Um, Peter says this, I'm writing this to you guys who are elected by God. That word elect, it's chosen. It's God, has, he's telling the people this, who are already entering into persecution, hey guys, first and foremost, man, keep at the forefront of your mind, God has chosen you. Because sometimes, don't you ever feel way in the back of the group? Don't you feel a little bit behind spiritually, maybe where the rest of the group is? Sometimes Satan can get a hold of that and those thoughts and those thinkings and really separate us quite a bit from God. But what Peter's saying is this. Understand that God who created the heavens and the earth, the seas, everything that's there, light as it is, space and time as we understand it, he says, this God has chosen you. He's picked you. He has elected you. And Peter also tells them this. 
you guys are strangers in the world. You're just simply strangers. Um, he will say later on, uh, over in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from the sinful desires that war against your soul. And he's simply saying this, Hey, do you guys understand you're strangers? Now let me say this, because I'm the one who's up here speaking. That there's probably never a greater time in your life when you feel a stranger or estranged from this world as when you're going through persecution. You ever had a time at your work where all of a sudden there's a group of people there that turn against you because you're the goody two-shoes Christian and you feel separated? Anybody ever had that? Yeah. How about if you're being hunted down by Roman guards, centurions? Are you all of a sudden going to feel a little bit scattered? Are you going to feel like you don't really have a place? Are you going to feel like you can't even be comfortable where you're at because at any moment you might have to get up and run? And Peter simply reminding them, hey, you're just scattered people, strangers in the world and scattered throughout the area. Now, here's the beautiful thing about how God works. The church, as I said earlier, it had a lot of freedom for a long time. Remember Jesus says, you know, from Jerusalem, Judea, and then outwards, you know, let's get established with the word here, work outward into your country, and then let it spread. And it's interesting that every time that persecution comes on the church, well, it's kind of like an oil fire or a grease fire. You throw something on it or you throw some air or some water and what does it do? It just flames it up more and it just spreads it. And every time that Satan, he started there in Jerusalem, do you remember what the one act was really that got the church to go outside of the walls of Jerusalem as great as it did? It was the stoning of Stephen. And they stoned him and then the next chapter, chapter 8 says, man, and the church scattered out of there. They got out of town. And every time that Satan has tried to persecute the church, all he did was blow some persecution on that area, and he just blew the people from where they were and spread them out. Or what we know as the diaspora. They were dispersed, and the Jews went out from the area. And as soon as you'd have a group of people congregating over here and starting to meet, here would come Satan, and he'd blow on that little church fellowship. And all of a sudden, that church fellowship, it wouldn't go out. It would just spread like a flame. And it's a beautiful thing, guys, because no matter what you think the condition of the church is today, Jesus is still in control of it. We can be as negative as we want that the church in, in the United States, and, and it is true to some extent, the church in the United States is a sleeping church. She's very, you know, she's, she, she's just comfortable in her lifestyle in this world. But the truth of the matter is that God is still in control. He's still on the throne. And I think he has a great plan for the church. And so Peter is telling them this. You're strangers in the world. You're scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, one thing that we have to understand and that Peter's bringing the people back to is this understanding. Do you or do you not believe that God is eternal and all-knowing? Because if you don't believe that God is all-knowing, you don't believe in the God of the Bible. You have your own concept of who you would like for God to be. And your concept of God, strangely enough, will actually look a lot like you. People's concepts of God, they'll make them a lot like themselves so that their God will react just like how they would or do exactly what they would. And that's how people create their gods. And he's simply saying this, the foreknowledge of God, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, what we have to understand about this is when we talk about the foreknowledge of God, it is something that really is beyond our comprehension. Because we don't have anything else really like it. We can give examples, but it's not quite how God is because he's outside of space-time. He knows everything. As a matter of fact, he already accomplished all this work before the world had even been, been created. 
The lamb was already slain. All of this was understood. All of this was going to happen. Your sin was already identified. My sin was identified. And the need of a savior was already there before Adam and Eve ever sinned in the garden. So here's a simple question about all of this. If you honestly believe that God in eternity past set forth a plan of redemption for you to save you from your sin. And how many of you would say, I agree with that? No. Okay, don't all get too excited at the same time. <laughs> would you agree? I mean, for the most part, we'd agree about it. Then this is what we're directed. If you believe that God is great enough in his foreknowledge to save you from your sin, that he knows the day you're born, he knows the day that you will pass from this world or the day that Jesus comes and pulls you out of here. He knew you while you're being formed in your womb. He even knew you before you were conceived. If we're so confident in his plan of salvation for us and that we believe that when we die, we'll be in the presence of God, hallelujah, amen, why then does it become so difficult for us to trust him with our tomorrow or our next week? or our next paycheck, or our next whatever it may be. Yeah, I believe you, God, for salvation and all that you've accomplished. You're so great and mighty. You're sovereign over all, but I don't know about this problem here. I'm not quite sure you, you've, you've got this one figured out. Guys, at the time, at the point in our lives, when we can trust God as sovereign over all, there will be a tremendous freeing, a releasing a calm in our lives that we understand we don't have to do it. We don't have to stress over it. We don't have to make it happen. God is not asking us to make it happen. He's just asking us to simply be instruments willing to be used. We have men in the Bible. Moses preached for a hundred. Noah preached for 120 years. Rich Mullen says... 120 years and no one understood, except for his family. Of course, you got the faithful family there. You have guys like Jeremiah preaching for 40 years and no national repentance. You have a guy like Ezekiel who's out there wiping out the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And nobody really turned towards God because God never grades us on the numbers he never grades us on how many people get saved because of our evangelistic efforts. He grades us on what? Our faithfulness to just do what he's asking. And that's always what God is working in. Peter's really going to hit that, the concept of just having your faith in God. And he says this, back over to verse 2. You who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit... Now, here's the deal. How many of you... How many of you, if there was a spiritual, say, like a spiritual horse race, you know, and like, you know, who's going to finish first? How many of you... Don't raise your hands. How many of you would actually bet on yourself? Or would you say, oh, they're going to beat me in the spiritual horse race? Most definitely. Does that ring true? Possibly. Oh, they're the oh, they're so spiritually mature. God's going to do so much more through them through me. It actually rings a bell, doesn't it? You ever looked at somebody else and said, "Man, you know what? I, I don't think I'll ever be there." You know the cool thing about God? Well, there's a lot of cool things about God, and we only have, you know, three hours to teach tonight. The great thing about God is that He always, He already sees us as perfection. Now think about how you see yourself. You see your weaknesses. You see your doubting, right? You see your unfaithfulness. You see your sin. But guys, when God looks at us, that's not how he sees us at, at all. He sees us as his perfection. He sees us as the instrument to bring him glory and praise. He sees us worthy enough, valuable enough, that his son would give up his life so that we might be saved. I want you guys to know, you may think, man, 
if I was going to bet on a spiritual horse race, I wouldn't be betting on myself. Man, ditch that mindset and say, I want all that God has in store for me. It's a foolish thing to look at somebody else and say, oh man, they've got it all. They're so spiritually mature and wise. You know what that person is going to do if you told them that to their face? They probably laugh so hard that they might have the urge to, well, never mind, do the whale thing of Jonah. Because it would just be hilarious, wouldn't it? You think I'm what? You think you would put your money on me? What? In a spiritual race, I would be the one that you would vote for? Man, don't be fooled by that because God sees you how he sees his son. He sees absolute perfection. And it goes on to say this. He says, uh, the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. You could read it like this. Back up in verse 2, who have been chosen, then drop down to for obedience to Jesus Christ. You've been chosen for what? Obedience to Christ Jesus. What was that main word again there? Chosen and then obedience. You guys all know the hymn, or hopefully you've, you've heard it, trust and what? And obey. It is better to obey than to what? Than to sacrifice. And so often in our lives, we think that our lives are going down this road, and, and, and sometimes we think, well, my sacrifice is going to church. Have you ever been there, God? It's a sacrifice going to that church. I sit there and listen for an hour and 15 minutes, and I'm sacrificing God. No, you see, what God desires, he doesn't desire your money. He doesn't desire your time. He doesn't desire the work that you do for the body. He desires for you to obey. And all of those things will have their place in your obedience to your heavenly father. And so Peter tells them this. By the way, hopefully you've already marked this in your Bibles. Foreknowledge of who? God. The sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. You see the Trinity right there in action? Do you see God the Father? It's his work being inactive. It's, it's his direction. The Spirit then is purifying your lives. It's now setting you apart all to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. All continue to do all that he began to do in his ministry before he was taken up. And then he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Who has, I forget what the, the King James or the New King James Version says there. It's grace and, grace and peace be multiplied, I think. Multiplied. And you guys know, we've talked about the Siamese twins of the New Testament, grace and peace. And you can't have the peace of God until you first have the what? Grace. As a matter of fact, it's the grace of God brings you peace with God. And when you have peace with God, man, that is whenever life becomes very amazing here in this world. It's what Jesus would say. It becomes what kind of a life? An abundant life. And he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, exclamation point. Now, what's so cool about this is as you read this, sometimes we just read right through, uh, well, in our English, the exclamation points, because in Greek, they don't, have, uh, they don't have exclamation points, periods, and so forth. But here, Peter just starts out, he's already writing about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Hey, we're strangers, there's difficulty, but look, God's in control between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've got all of this worked out in their continual working. And then Peter, much like Paul will do, Paul will be writing out a letter and all of a sudden he just breaks out into spontaneous praise. And this is what Peter's doing. Man, praise God. Praise God. Look what he's doing. And now he's leading people in this direction. He says, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us what? New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this is what Peter's simply telling them. There is a time in your life, and over in verses 18 
in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the, what? From the empty way of life handed down to you. And remember, we studied that on Sunday. That what Peter's telling us is, there was a time when you were living in this world when your life consisted of zero. There was no value in your life whatsoever. Now, Peter, before he gets there, Peter reminds him, he says, oh, by the way, don't forget your living hope. Never forget your living hope. Never forget the new life that has been given to you because at the point that you forget that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus and that Christ is surely alive, that he's resurrected from the dead, at the point that you start to diminish on that understanding, you will start to feel fear for your life physically. You'll start trying to maintain your life here in physical ways rather than relying on God's spiritual plan for your life. And at the point that you forget that you are reborn and that Christ is there walking you, you'll start wandering and gravitating towards the things of this world and trying to find safety and security. And what Peter's telling them is this, be very careful about what you find as your security in this world. Be very careful about what satisfies your nerves and your great concerns. And he's telling them this, put it all on Christ Jesus. Put it all on the fact of the resurrection. Do you remember the disciples after Jesus is crucified? I mean, you can kind of get the, get the mentality. Jesus is crucified. He's put in the grave. And what are all the disciples doing? Hey, we should worship God. Somebody get out the psalm book and we'll start singing. Is that what they were doing? Got some tamarines and the harps and all. No. What were they doing? They were in a depression. Sorry. <laughs> I see Karen's back there doing this as I walk back and forth. They were back there in a what? That's weird. Yeah, they were going into a depression. Oh, man. Three years with him, and now he's, well, now he's gone. Remember I told you guys that for three years, the disciples never even had to think about what they're going to eat or where they're going to sleep or where they're going to be that day. Everything for three years almost 1,100 days, everything was provided for them. And then Jesus is gone. How do we know that that was the spirit of such things? Well, Luke 24 tells us about two men on the road to Emmaus, doesn't he? Remember, Jesus comes up behind them and they're kind of, you know, kicking the can down the road. Hey, what's going on, boys? Oh, you didn't hear? Yeah, Jesus, he's dead. We thought he was the one, but they killed him. A lot of despair there, isn't there? But what happened at the moment that Jesus revealed himself to those two men? Oh, it's Jesus. And do you remember? It says that those two men, they had reached their destination. They were eating dinner. Jesus reveals himself, and what do they do? They hiked up their skirts and off to Jerusalem they hustled. And they were so excited. And I'm sure everybody that they passed on the road that was coming from Jerusalem, hey, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. And they get to the disciples and they're telling the disciples and then Jesus shows up. Oh, Jesus is alive. And then you have Thomas who's saying, well, I don't know if he's really alive. I'll have to put my hand, touch his hands, put my hand. and say, whatever, I'll have to see it for myself. And then Thomas sees it. And what happens? Jesus is alive. Why was that so, such a drastic change in their lives? From one hour being in the doldrums of depression to now being in the position of praise. Because Jesus was what? He was alive. And they understood, if Jesus is alive, if Jesus who is fully man, fully God, God in flesh, or the E word, Emmanuel, <laughs> eternal, that's good too, that works. If Jesus is alive, well, then what kicks into their minds wasn't written yet, but Hebrews tells them, chapter 2 would tell us, that Jesus became flesh and blood. You guys are familiar with this, we just studied it. 
He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power over death, that is the devil, and destroy him who holds people in bondage by their fear of death. And what they began to understand was this. Not fully, not in totality, but they started understanding that if Jesus was crucified, put in a grave, and is alive, means that he's eternal. Oh, now it's making sense. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I go, there you may be also. Oh, my father's house, there are many rooms. Hey, I'm going. I'm preparing. And what they started to understand is this. They now, as they follow Jesus, they have the power within them that has been given to them as they walk in Christ of an indestructible life. As a matter of fact, they move from the position of death into the position of what? In the position of life. Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were once without God and you were without what? Hope. You had no hope. And so he goes on simply to say this. You have a living hope. By the way, you guys should take note of this because I thought it was interesting. The difference between faith and hope. Faith is conviction. Hebrews 11 would say faith is being sure of what you hope for and confident of what you do not see. Faith is, I know I believe in God. I believe in his plan of salvation, of redemption. I believe that Jesus has come. Uh, he walked a sinless life. He died for my sins through crucifixion. He was put in the grave. He was resurrected in three days. And then he ascended unto the Father where he sits on the throne for all eternity. And I believe that he's the ruling and reigning king um, of all creation, of all that God is. And that would be your faith in God. I believe that that is what God, what God has done. Can, uh, hope is this. Hope is what you anticipate. It's anticipation. Faith is conviction. Hope is anticipation. What Peter's telling them is this. Jesus is your living hope. Because he is living now, that is what you anticipate. You understand that he is your living hope. You have hope that he is going to come in return. In the early church, that was their big hope. Everybody believed, hey, before John dies, you know, Jesus is going to come back. And they're hoping and hoping, but they're anticipating. Today, do we not still anticipate the return of Christ? Well, let me say it like this. We probably talk about that we have the need to anticipate the return of Christ. But so often we don't live like we're anticipating the return of Christ, do we? It might be a little convicting if at any time during the day somebody just called you up or sent you a text and said, right now if Christ returned, how would you feel about that? As a matter of fact, where you sit today, if Christ returned today, how would you feel about it? I'm not trying to convict. You may feel absolutely satisfied, fulfilled in what Christ has done in through your life, but it's a good question to think about, isn't it? If Christ returned today, how would you feel about where you're at in your relationship with him? Would you say, oh man, I thought if I just went one more month and then I'd kick it into gear and I'd start memorizing scripture and read every day and so forth. By the way, how many have ever promised that one? Just, okay, just me. Pastor needs prayer. And he's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And it's kept in heaven for you. Now what Peter is saying is this, because so often what Satan tempts us with in persecution is this. The loss of worldly things. Because when the world comes after you for being a Christian, they're going to come after not only your life, they're going to come after your possessions, right? If a, a person in Judaism converts to Christianity, his wife's probably going to disown him, his children would disown him, um, the rest of his family would disown him. If he had a business, nobody would do business with him. He'd be excommunicated from the society there, and he would lose absolutely everything. Paul understood this. That's why he says, what I once thought was gain, I now count as what? Loss or dung. 
I now, all that I used to strive for, the, the house and, and the picket fence and, and the rich food and the garments and people noticing me as I walk down the street, he says, ah, oh, it's not worth anything. And what the world will come after you in the first thing, and you will find it. It's hard. Here's the deal I believe. There's going to be two avenues in our lives. The first one is this. Either we decide in our hearts to surrender everything to God. We're faithful stewards. I'm not saying go and sell everything and give it to the poor and go live in the street. But we come to the point where we say, I'm surrendering all to God. I desire to be the faithful steward that you desire and have created me to be God. That's going to be one avenue. Or the, avenue, the other avenue is going to be this. The world is going to come and rip all that you desire in your life away from your hands. And it's going to be a great tearing in your life. I believe that that's one of two choices that most people will probably face. Either a willing surrender or the world is going to come and tear apart. And do you know, I believe that most people, possibly in the church today, would choose their possessions rather than the persecution. They would say, you're telling me that I don't, have to be, I don't have to be persecuted? If I just consider, if I, if I don't really follow Jesus, but you'll leave me all my stuff? And I think most people would probably say, as long as you don't touch my stuff, I'll be happy. I'll be quiet about my Christianity. I mean, after all, I know God loves me. He saves me. I prayed the prayer and so forth. So it's not really about following him so much and being real vocal about who he is. I'll just be one of those quiet Christians. It says this, he's given us, verse 4, an inheritance that can never what? Perish, spoil, or fade. I mentioned this on Sunday. Did you know... You might want to hit the button on there. It's, I think it's fan on the, I probably have the fan on, which is why it's continually blowing. So on the thermostat there. Yes. Is making me nervous. He's saying this, you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Do you remember I gave the illustration that said, check out a junkyard? Go there and look at all of those cars that are there. And at some point, going back 15, 20, 30 years, that automobile was sitting on the showroom floor, and it was the apple of somebody's eye, and they surrendered so much to have that vehicle, and they thought, man, if I have that vehicle, it'd be so great. And then 20 or 30 years later, it's a junker worth 200 to $300. Is it something that spoils and fades? Moth-eaten? corroded but look at what peter's saying what god has for you it's kept in heaven for you it is something that is eternal and what peter is saying here is don't ever become deluded with the understanding that there's anything in this world that even compares to the glorious riches the glorious riches of god as a matter of fact, you could own all the wealth in this world, and I don't believe that that would even compare to what the least in the kingdom of God will receive as far as an inheritance. It's that far outstanding. It's inconceivable. One of the things that I was thinking about, I kind of made myself laugh if I was going through this this afternoon. I thought, I thought, because he says this, you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and it's kept in heaven for you. And I thought, you know what? That's a good thing that God keeps our inheritance in heaven. Because if he ever transferred that into monetary wealth here in this world, what would we probably do? We'd probably blow it all. And I'm like, thank you, God, that, you know, he's wise enough to keep my inheritance there and making sure that, you know, I couldn't just blow it, blow it all over the place. But now I have the understanding that I have something there that is beyond anything that I can even think of in this world. And God has that in store for each and every one of his children. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more does your heavenly father desire to give good gifts to those who what? Who ask. And what Jesus is telling us is, you can ask of the father here and now, and he will provide you. But the great inheritance, it's there. And he's helping the people going through persecution, through difficulties, through trials, to keep their, their mind on the main Thing. Keep the main thing what? 
the main thing. And he says this, verse 5, because you who faith, uh, um, let me back up, verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are, what's that word? Shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now he's saying this, do you not know, no matter what difficulty, no matter what trial, no matter what situation comes upon your life, he uses this word, shielded, or actually in the Greek, it is guarded or watched. And he's saying you are guarded by God. You are being watched by God. No matter what is happening in your life, you are being guarded by God. Your faith in him, he's faithful. And he's guarding your life and he's watching what's going on. Here's a kind of an interesting kind of concept behind all of this. It's weird to think about this. And you might say, I'll have to chew on this a little bit more, Steve, before I can really accept this. Do you understand that as a believer in Christ, really anybody in this world, but as far as Christians, let's talk about, do you know that you're untouchable from somebody taking your life out in this world unless God allows it? unless it's in his will, unless it's his plan. Which means this. He's telling them, faithfully serve God up until the moment that God takes you out. Because it's never man taking you out of this world, but it's God taking you out of this world and into his presence. To be absent from this body is what? To be present with Christ. And he says this, you're shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I want you guys also to know this. He tells Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. I'm the one who's around you, Abraham. I'm the one who's taking care of you, Abraham. Abraham, put your faith and your trust in me. Abraham, just watch, listen for what I'm telling you, watch for what I'm doing, and just follow me where I'm going. And the amazing thing is this. Although we may feel like we let go of the hand of God, God's hand never lets go of us. It's kind of like this. We've all had this experience with a kid. You're getting ready to cross maybe a parking lot or maybe it's a busy road. And, and uh, you're like, hey, hold my hand. And kids get to a certain age where they do what? I don't want to hold your hand. I don't like your hand anymore. Your hand's really repulsive to me now. But even if, not, even if that's not the case and they say, okay, I'll hold your hand, the child thinks that they have a hold of your hand, don't they? Yeah. If you're getting ready to cross Republic Road here and there's traffic going back and forth, do you stick your finger out like this and let the kid hold on to your finger as you lead him across the road? What do you do? You have, they think you're just holding hands. But what you understand is you have a hold of not only their hand but their wrist. And at any moment, you could literally take that child if you needed to in an act of emergency and you could throw them 15 or 20 feet if you had to. Well, Ryan, you could easily enough. <laughs> Some other kids, you'd throw your hip out. Um, but guys, it's the same picture with our father, isn't it? Sometimes we think we let go of the hand of God. But it was never us who was holding his hand, was it? It was always him holding on to us. He's our shield. And he is, even reflecting right here, our very great reward, an inheritance in store for us. Now, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Now, though, for a little while you may have, <coughs> excuse me, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of what? Trials. Remember James chapter 1. We just got done finishing up James. James says, hey, trials are coming into your life because they're going to do what in your life? Yeah, let's look at it. Go backwards just a little bit. James chapter 1, since there was such a unanimous response, we'll go ahead and read it. Verse 2, James chapter 1, verse 2. And he says it like this. If you turn more than 10 pages, you've gone way too far. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face what? Trials of many kinds. Consider it what? What? That's so ridiculous. In the world. 
Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be, what? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, hey, God disciplines his children. He's trying to perfect them into the likeness of his son. He wants them to be as close to him in this world that somebody could possibly get. They want him to know how, uh, he wants us to know how God thinks, how he acts, his desire, his plan, his will, his empowerment. And God desires to accomplish all of this in our lives. And that's what the Hebrews writer is telling us, that if you're a true child of God, God's going to do what? He's going to discipline. He's going to work. There's going to be trials. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice. Now, now, though for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Here's a question. What have you learned from your trials in the last six months? Okay. <laughs> Do What? But you personally, I mean, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to answer it out loud. What have you learned from your trials in the last six months or a year? Have you learned to trust God? Or have you learned that you're going to be coming back around to the same trial again because you took the scapegoat door and tried to, side, tried to go around what God was doing? And you know that you're going to be right back to that decision-making point again. Now that's all too real, isn't it? Please understand what the word of God is saying. That obedience in the trial is for your good and his what? And his glory. It is a great thing for you to be at a place in your life. Let me reword it like this. We should all desire. We should crave that we would be in a situation in our lives where we can't do anything about it and we're completely helpless. Because why? It's going to build our what? Faith. Faith is a what? Muscle. It's got to be worked out. Now, the deal is this. Right now in our country, we're very comfortable. We're not under persecution. We have a lot of freedom. It's during these times that what God is doing, we have the freedom to teach the word. We could teach it 10 times a week if we wanted to, 20 times a week. We have the freedom. And what God is doing is this. As he teaches us the word, he now brings us into situations, opportunities to test our faith. And it's not so that God can find out where we're at, but it's so that we know where we're at. And here's the deal. In the times of freedom... Embrace all the trials that God is giving you. Because when you embrace the trials and exalt him as God and him as Lord as your life, what happens to your faith? Your faith grows. Then the wave of persecution comes. And what happens? You have the faith to withstand the attack. But if you so choose during the time of freedom and liberty like what we have here to not allow your freedom to be built or your faith to be built up, when the big persecution comes, when it's, hey, deny Christ or I'll shoot you, you'll probably deny Christ because you won't have the faith to stand. Because you won't be able to say, I know in all these situations, God has been faithful to me in the past. And this guy right now, I don't know what he's talking about. I think it'd just be better if I live. So I, I, don't, I don't know any Jesus. And we'll rationalize it by saying this. It's better for me to live another day because I might be able to witness to somebody rather than lose my life. This is totally side point from this connects with the message. But I just want you guys to know how this works out practically how I think this is a plausible situation. If any of you guys have been watching the news, are you familiar with the drones United States? Well, right now, the direction that our CIA it appears to be moving is simply that they, we now use these drones. They're unmanned, and, and uh, this current administration has killed more people and I think other administrations would have killed more if maybe they had better technology at the time. But we've killed a lot of people around the world with these unmanned drones. They're sitting there at a diner having lunch, and we just shoot a missile into the diner, wipe the guy out, a few other people, but that's all collateral damage, and we take out the terrorist. The big question now is this. 
can we use those drones on United States citizens that we think are terrorists? And you know what our CIA is saying? Yeah, we'd have to consider the situation, but it may not be constitutional, but if they're a terrorist, we should do away with them, which goes against our Constitution, which takes away the freedom of due process. Everybody gets to have a court trial. Everybody gets a defense, and we're taking away that freedom. Now watch how quickly this happens. And the government turns around, and the government says, Christians can no longer speak anything negative about any other religion in the world. They can't claim that they're the only way because that would be, what's the word? Intolerant. Intolerant. And if you're caught speaking those things, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And we'll disband you. And then the church gathers together in a building. We're sitting there for Bible study. We're talking about that we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by him. There's no other way that a man can be saved but by the name of Christ Jesus. And then all of a sudden, in one failed swoop, you become an enemy of the state because you're going against what your government says. Do you see how quickly persecution could come to you? And then you know what? I mean, it's totally hypothetical. And then it's easy for the government to rationalize. They're enemies of the state. They're all in one building. Why don't we just take them all out with one shot? No mess then. Easy. Do you see how quickly the persecution, let me say, that's how quickly it came upon the Christians in the first century. One day they seemed to have some freedom, and the next day everything turned against them. We must be ready. And I've given you that long example to simply say this. Prepare now. Have your eyes wide open. Be keeping a list. You should know. You should know, and it should be in the forefront of your mind, the trials that God's taking you through right now. You should be well aware of the testing of your faith that you're going through right now in your life. And if you're not, you're just rejecting what God has desired to do. And God said, I'll step back, I'll give it another week, month, or year, and I'll come back around again. Because you should be going through something that is stretching you. And if there's a time in your life where you're not being stretched, be careful because at the moment that you're sitting on the sofa and getting all nice and comfortable, your muscles start going to atrophy, right? It doesn't take very many days up in space when our astronauts come down, they can't even walk. And that's how quickly our faith starts to diminish. Well, let's continue on here. He says, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by the fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. And so Peter gives us this understanding. He says, look at what he says. Your faith, he says, your faith is greater than anything that you think is valuable. As a matter of fact, what he's saying is, that what is considered valuable in the kingdom of God is your what? Is your what? On God's economy, you might say, what runs God's economy? Faith. Faith is the greatest. It's what God desires to grow. It's seen as great wealth in your life to have great faith in God. And Peter says it like this. He says, it's just like how the guy who's going to make something out of gold. And he'll take it and he'll melt it and put it in the smelter's pot. He heats it up. The dross comes up, the impurities. He scrapes the dross off the top. He increases the fire. So more impurity comes up. He crosses it. He, he cleans off the top of it. And he knows that he's cleaned it out completely when he can look down into it and see his what? his reflection, and he sees the purity there. Guys, one of the great things about trials and difficulties in our lives, catch this and then we're closing, is that God allows the trials to come into our lives because what he desires to do is he is fashioning us. And he increases the heat just a little bit. And those impurity comes out, those things of, oh, I can't fix this, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
and all of a sudden that boils up in our life and it passes out. And then we say, hey, I'll trust God. And then what God will do is he'll increase the heat just a little bit more. A more difficult situation to get more of the impurities out because what God the Father desires to do is look down into our lives and see his what? His reflection. And to see the pure heart, to see the person who longs for him more than anything else, and the person who's willing to say, God, if it takes increasing the heat to purify my life, I willingly surrender you that right, and I desire for you to do that work in my life. That is probably one of the greatest things that you could ever ask God to do in your life is to do whatever it takes to root out the selfishness, the sinfulness, the fleshliness, and to ask him, God, whatever it takes, and maybe I might not be left after it. Maybe it might be something you bring into my life that, that will eventually claim my life, but God, if it takes that in order to get my heart completely tuned into yours, God, would you do whatever it takes that's a hard prayer to pray, isn't it? But it's one that will yield so much godly fruit in your life. Amen?